Hi everyone, and welcome to Cyber.RAR, a podcast by Harvard Kennedy School students. My name is Sophie. And I'm Bethan. Picture a company that is operating in every corner of the world. It employs staff for almost every function, IT, strategy, operations. It manages huge budgets, massive workflows, and tons of data. This sounds like Amazon, right? No, we're talking about the world's biggest bureaucracy, the US Department of Defense. And unlike Amazon, the DOD doesn't have the cloud functionality of an average small business in the US. But cloud is just one example in a sea of technological capabilities that the DOD lacks and that the majority of US businesses rely on every single day. Even the CIA, which has had its own struggles with technology integration in the past, has had cloud computing for seven years. And that's what we're here to discuss today. How can the DoD accelerate its ability to acquire and field new capabilities, particularly for cyber capabilities? We want to kick off today's podcast by talking about Jedi. And no, we don't mean the heroes of the Star Wars series, although today is May 4th, so May the 4th be with you. Anyway, back to business. (laughs) JEDI is short for the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure and was the Pentagon's effort to deliver a functional department-wide online cloud to the DoD. The contract procurement process began in 2018 with a call for a winner-take-all request for proposal for a $10 billion decade-long contract to handle cloud infrastructure strategy for the entire Pentagon. When the Pentagon announced the JEDI contract, the CIA, as Sophie mentioned, was already using a cloud built by Amazon, which was the presumed front runner for the award. Amazon even had ads up in the Pentagon metro station as early as May 2018. But the contract ended up going to Microsoft, which triggered a years-long legal fight over the fairness of how it was awarded, particularly given that then-President Donald Trump was vocally against Jeff Bezos. But it wasn't like a against Jeff Bezos's contract just like against him personally. Like, oh yeah, yeah. It was a very it was a very personal vendetta which we saw play out across the media and in a lot of Trump's comments. Um but again, uh, I think it was one of the uh, it was one of the driving one of the big motivations for Amazon beginning the lawsuit. Um that it could have had an influence. So Moving on from that, what made this even messier is Pentagon contracting rules, especially for contracts awarded to a single provider, have a formal appeal and challenge process. Sometimes the process helps make sure that a company promising something like an aircraft carrier, for example, can actually deliver it. However, with JEDI, challenging the contract also meant freezing the entire process as the military's data storage and transfer needs evolved while a contract was unable to be fulfilled. In the end, the long legal fight over JEDI kept the Pentagon from adopting one big cloud. The DoD ended up canceling the contract entirely. DoD officials have now shifted to a multi-cloud, multi-vendor alternative. Much like how the Empire, when its first Death Star blew up, created a second Death Star. Yes, exactly. I love it. I love it. which actually goes by a much less catchy and Star Wars-centered name, the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, 
is in the works, the DoD still lacks the cloud infrastructure that was originally detailed in the 2017 JEDI solicitation. We thought starting with the story of the JEDI contract is a good place to kick off today's discussion about the challenges of the DoD procurement process, the innovation ecosystem, and how software and cyber capabilities fit into that whole tangled web. Much like how long the Star Wars series is, there is a lot to unpack here. What's happening with the current defense innovation system? So there, clearly with JWIC, there's actual steps that the DOD has taken to try and address some of these software acquisition issues or, or infrastructure acquisition issues. And then on top of that, we have like the Defense Innovation Board, the Defense Innovation Unit. Those all exist within the DOD to get critical tech in there, right? So how does this work for cybersecurity and, and just technology infrastructure? Yeah, and, that, and that's really the crux of the issue here. And we talk about this in our episode briefly with Eric Rosenbach, which you should all definitely listen to, is that people love to talk about how the DOD has an innovation problem and has created all these different mechanisms like the Defense Innovation Board, the DIU, to get the tech into DOD capability. But that's not the fundamental challenge. The DOD first has a technology adoption problem, like we saw with JEDI, like we see with a lot of cyber infrastructure capabilities. The innovation system that the DoD is working to build can't scale while the existing IT infrastructure is still running on systems like Windows XP. Like, I wish I was kidding. In fact, the Army only moved over to the Microsoft 365 integrated email platform in 2021. I actually want to kick it over to Grace. Um, could you tell us about your experience using this tech during your time in the Army as a signal officer? You know, Beth and I can't shut up about it, so thank you for <laughs> I'm happy to give you a platform. That's what this podcast is really here for, is us to vent about things. <laughs> um, again, this only represents my views and not the views of the uh, United States military. Um, I would say that my personal experience um, working both overseas, um, I worked in Korea and Italy, um, generally speaking, um, the units outside of the U.S. get, like, our equipment latest. Um, but I also served in the 101st, um, and we were... Um, as far as conventional units go, we were pretty like tip of the spear, but I wouldn't say that we were actually the tip of the spear. Maybe like the middle point of the spear. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, the special forces like to, they're, they're the tip of the spear. Right. Air, <laughs> Air assault. Okay. Um, so, so we use, I mean, we had SharePoint um, and we had other platforms, but we still don't have we don't have the ability to like, zoom or video calls in in the army. Like you'd have to use your phone and like leave your office to do it. Oh um, we do have like secret uh, like VTC um, video uh, capabilities, um, but obviously those are like really hard to use, and you have to be on secret networks to use them. Um, but I, I think the probably the two most frustrating things for me personally was one the lack of integration. Um, when, I, when I were talking about that, um, were you know, we'd have, we, of course, we did have email, we, we did have SharePoint and like different ways for us to um, share information and, and, and work together. But oftentimes those systems didn't talk to each other. Grace's experience is one data point that we have heard multiple times over from other service members here at HKS and more broadly about the challenge of just the day to day of running on systems that don't speak to each other and are super outdated and the process of getting new technology is just so slow. Yeah, it's a really good point. And as we said at the top of the episode, the Department of Defense is one of the world's largest technology organizations, but it still has trouble developing and rapidly buying and fielding IT, particularly software. 
um, the regulatory structures and the funding appropriations and the contract requirements all mean that it takes years for the DoD to make it through the process of buying new technology, whether it's um, software to operate a fighter jet or tactical radios or the latest version of Microsoft Office. And by the time the procurement process is wrapping up, that technology is most likely out of date, as Grace said. And we talk about this challenge in our interview with Eric Rosenbach. But the bottom line is that the DoD is really good at buying stuff like jets and ships and tanks, but less good at buying software. However, the majority of weapon systems and stuff that the DoD is good at buying are increasingly software intensive. So the DoD really urgently needs to update its software development and procurement practices to be competitive um, in the 21st century. A great stat from a recent Hudson Institute report is that software performed 80% of system functions in the F-22 fighter jet in 2000, up from 45% for the F-16 in 1982. That means that these systems are way more autonomous than they were uh, back in the 80s. And so ultimately, the rigidity of the contracting and procurement frameworks within the DoD uh, prohibit the agility and iteration that's needed for software. Um, so you both have told us a lot about what's going on, but I have to admit, I feel out of my depth. This feels like a really complicated, opaque space. Can you just give me what is going on? How does one get a ship versus software? And why is the way that that's happening a problem right now? Congress passes the National Defense Authorization Act, which is essentially funneled in from the different services. Um, and one of the challenges there is the majority of the budget submitted to Congress from the DOD is essentially copy and pasted from the year before. And so you have a lot of the same processes and a lot of the same allocations for money and projects, et cetera, for both acquisition and sustainment that isn't adopted or changed to meet the relevant needs of technology or software. So I think an interesting point is about the efforts to create a software acquisition pathway. So, so you're saying that the, the DOD fundamentally, when it comes to what stuff it needs, has to know over the next one to two years exactly what it needs. Exactly. Yeah, because this process, you know, already the fiscal year uh, 2023 budget is, is being run through the process. But they're starting right away on 24, 25. And I think an interesting point is that one of the challenges of cyber capabilities and cyber talent is that the DOD doesn't necessarily know what it needs now and what it will need in two years, even though it's already planning for 2025 now. It also seems to me like that process is optimized for two things that aren't necessarily relevant in when it comes to cyber capabilities. One is Obviously, it's optimized for the way that we pass legislation. So there's not much we can do about that. True. Um, but the other is it's optimized for our old model of weaponry, which is weaponry that isn't going to change meaningfully, you know, on the scale of weeks, it's years. Exactly. So it's okay that we're funding things on that scale as well. Whereas now we're talking about, you know, major updates that can happen in a day in weeks and right. funding, you know, five years out doesn't work for that. It's totally different. The entire threat landscape in cyber, as we've talked about, can change. Whereas we know that tanks are pretty much gonna do the same things that tanks have been doing for years. That domain is not gonna radically change. 
And I mean, it's not just cyber capabilities, right? Like, like you said in the Jedi program, like cyber capabilities, we can talk about, you know, how much it's going to cost to build an exploit for Windows between, you know, 2018 to 2021, like when we're talking about actual like things that the government is going to purchase to conduct cyber operations. But we're also talking about just cloud computing, right? Like how much is it going to cost for the government to host all of its services on cloud? And, you know, that might be easier maybe to quantify, but technology as it changes year on year, if you have a contract in 2018 that doesn't get implemented fully until 2020, that software is completely obsolete. Yeah. So we've been having, like in the business world, digital transformation is an ancient term by now. A lot of companies already had the conversation we're having right now and realized we need to move towards a digital world, you know, quickly and at scale. Why has the DOD either not had that conversation or is struggling to put that conversation into action? I laugh when I watch movies that are like, this is military grade. Because to me, that doesn't mean this is awesome. It means like, oh, wow. So this is two or three generations behind. They took out all the coolest (laughs) shit so that it can be extremely secure. And also, oh, it can get rained on and not break. (laughs) So it's like giant ruggedized and they painted it green. So then now it's military grade. So are you telling me all these like military supply stores that we see are just like false advertising? Those are... so many of those like on the way up to the balcony. Okay, well, those are literally like thrift stores for camos. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And that, about. that goes back to the stuff versus software. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't you don't just go to the Apple store, buy a computer, bring it back and just like plug it into the wall. Because even the internet that we have there, it's not Wi-Fi. It's uh it's it's still a very secure network despite it being unclassified. Um so there are a number of mechanisms in place to basically disable like I mean, three quarters of uh, a piece of equipment capabilities. And so that's part of the procurement process. And that's part of why it's so hard to get like, quote unquote, cool, the cool stuff. So I, I sort of buy that, but I also struggle with that being the whole explanation. So I, what you're describing, which is that the military has a bunch of requirements that don't fit at market products. So you do a bunch of aftermarket modification, which slows down your acquisition time, it makes total sense. But at the same time, They've known that's their reality for a long time. There's a lot of efforts going on to innovate in-house in a way that's fit for defense purposes. So it's not aftermarket modification, it's, it's military specific. And or if there, if there aren't that many, and if I'm wrong, it's sort of a few pockets of that. It seems like there should be more of that. So why, that, that's a known quantity problem. Like why can't we solve that? So something to keep in mind, especially when talking about contracting for software and specifically for Agile, is that there's a difference between contract requirements and functional requirements. So contract requirements are limited to the specific tasks that the government requires a contractor to perform, which in a lot of cases are only distantly related to the actual functional requirements. For example, a contract requirement may require staffing for the development team, rather than a functional requirement which would be expressed in the form of a user story. Often the two get confused, which leads to some miscommunications between contracting side and program side, which plays a part in why we can't seem to get this right. That's why it's really important that we have an environment with sufficient contract flexibility to account for that upfront. So you're saying that 
in the contract that a DOD will send, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it super simple. Like I want to set up an unclassified web app for CISA. <laughs> and in that contract requirement, I'm going to say, okay, this, you know, if I'm going to contract this out to insert government contractor here that builds, you know, software for the government, um, I need at least 10 people on this project. It's going to take about 12 months. Lord knows what you're going to do with 12 months to build a website. <laughs> uh, you know, two UI designers. Um, it's going to require like XYZ uh, backend, uh, you know, server setup. And at the end, it'll produce this website. And that's going to be very different from the CISA rumor control alerts website has you know, this set of menus that if you need to go in, you can click on X thing and it'll show you how to dispel rumors in your neighborhood or, or something like that. So exactly like you said, Winona, like a contract requirement example would be, we need five full-time equivalent software developers to build this CISA web app. Whereas the functional requirement is we need content search capabilities in this web app. It feels so odd that a contract for a product wouldn't have the product requirements for what that service or product should provide, right? Because that's a, a baseline check for being able to provide the, the correct service. It often does, but those requirements change over the 12 to 18 months that it takes mm. to execute that product. Is there, is there a someone or a part of the system that benefits from these seemingly misplaced contract requirements? Because that to me is always the- Contractors. <laughs> ah, ah. It seems like that's the simplest explanation for when you have a piece that doesn't fit in the puzzle is yeah. like it fits for somebody and so i'm just curious who is this system working for well, right now yeah and i don't think it's party. working for i don't think it's working for many people but i think a big part of this is just the history of putting in place i think what at one time were well-meaning legal structures to protect both the military and to protect fair business practices right like giving everyone a fair shot but obviously now that's been dominated by the primes and the, the- What are the primes? The primes are the prime contractors who have the largest capacity to work directly with the DOD. It's just built on years and years of these structures that make it difficult to unwind. And then also a lot of this does require changes from Congress. So that's kind of the elephant in the room in all of this is this is congressional allocated money, like the power of the purse. It's the American people, it's our money. And so again, that's a whole nother layer of complications and also oftentimes justified that protects spending within the DOT. Just to unroll that a little bit more, I think what you're saying is it's money that's been allocated year over year to certain states because that's where these primes are located yeah. and that results in jobs and, and all, all of the valuable things we want for the American people flowing through to those places. So changing these contracting requirements in a way that would enable the entry of more software and service providers means not just adding something, it means rolling back some of what is already benefiting people in the States. Right. Is that correct? Exactly. And then another complex part of this is there's a big push now to get more startups and small businesses into the DOD. So that's what the Defense Innovation is using. A lot of the um, service level innovation hubs like AFWorks, NableX, um, and then a problem there is a lot of those startups are concentrated in areas like Silicon Valley, like Boston. And so you don't have a more equal distribution of all the money 
that comes from these contracts. So, and that's, and that goes two ways, right? Like we want small businesses to have access to the purchasing power of the DOD, but the reality is these small businesses are concentrated in areas where there's a lot of venture capital money, a lot of funding areas of already of incredible wealth. To the point of bureaucracy, um, I think I want to kind of both, I want to play both sides on that one. We're like, I think maybe controversially, I'm pretty pro bureaucracy because I think it's it's due to people taking advantage of systems um, and uh, insider training, that sort of thing. Um, so to me, I think the, the system is bureaucratic for a reason um, and it's to prevent fraud, waste and abuse. Unfortunately, the, the system is such that there, there are still people who know the system extremely well, like you were talking about, right. still take advantage of it. Um, I think also it's not just about small businesses not having access to the, um, to the money or companies in Silicon Valley, New York, um, already having a lot of money at their disposal. It's also like just such a hassle to get through these types of contracts. So if you don't already have an expert on your team in that type of contracting, then you're just, you're not going to put your efforts in it, especially if it's not guaranteed that you're going to get that contract. Yeah, that, okay. You're, you hit on like one of the biggest points, biggest pain points is that it knowing the process favors the primes which is why they keep winning the contracts because they have the experts your small startup like sophie's point about uh you know buying data versus more stuff or even a company that hasn't that may be large but hasn't typically worked with the dod before just it's not worth the manpower and the time um and the process so there's a great a great um phrase it's not a great thing but it's a it's a good phrase it's called the valley of death right it's if you know, a startup or a small business is allocated, is awarded a contract with the DOD, they are saying like, okay, for example, like you will make a specific drone for us, or you will develop a specific software. It takes one to two years often before it becomes actually implemented or paid for. So a small business or a startup that needs the money now kind of their hands are tied. And this is an issue that a lot of innovation systems are trying to work on is, is cutting down that time. Like the DIU, one of its big value propositions is it says it cuts down what is typically a two year time frame to 30 to 90 days. So you don't have startup founders who feel like they're sitting on their hands. But again, the DIU uses what's called other transaction authorities, which is the flexibility of spending money but that's a tiny pool. Like you're talking millions of dollars versus billions of dollars of the overall DOD budget. So in other parts of economic development, you have people who whose job it is to like basically walk people through the system guides so that you don't have this uneven advantage for people who are familiar with the system in the way that you're describing the primes having an advantage. Does DOD have that for these smaller businesses that they're trying to nurture? There are pockets of excellence in and out of government working really hard to bridge this gap. So, you know, AFWorks is one point of entry for industry to do business with the Air Force, um, where companies can submit ideas for improving Air Force technology to campaigns or uh, on the Air Force Challenge platform. And there are others in this kind of bridging function for innovation adoption. But the larger issue still persists. What you see is many fantastic new technologies being piloted, 
you know, those companies go to AFWorks or SoftWorks and they're the best in class, but then, you know, there's an 18 to 24 month wait before they get into the program. And for a lot of small companies, that's just a non-starter. I love how this conversation has evolved because we started talking about big commercial infrastructure, a, a cloud system for the entire DOD, which would be on the scale of billions of dollars and be with big established companies. And now we're talking about um, the challenges for small businesses uh, to get through the contracting process. And it seems like at both ends of the spectrum, some of the problems are the same. So where do we go from here? What's next for the DOD? And, and that's the problem is, is there's so many different ways. Like personally, my opinion is that there needs to be more flexibility and less rigid pathways for software acquisitions and startups and small businesses. So for example, scaling the work that the DIU does and making the defense eco innovation ecosystem less fragmented. Again, because there's a DIU, there's a service level innovation hubs, there's a defense innovation board, there's you know the defense digital service. There's so many different platforms that there needs to be a more centralized approach and an expansion, obviously with the support of Congress um, for this type of funding. Like I think a, a good example is Congressman Mike Gallagher just um, passed a warfighter innovation fund for $100 million that can basically be spent on any type of innovative technology. But again, that's $100 million, small. Um, so there needs to be a scaling of this type of flexibility with a caveat that you do have to be careful. This is taxpayer money. It needs to be spent in a way that is monitored and transparent and accountable. And even then, I, just to take this back to the uh, thing that I think gets brought up every episode is that DOD needs good talent. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, and like if, and, and even maybe just better ability to understand user journeys and user requirements for these technologies. Um, and so when you're thinking about how to design a contract for a government website or how to even update it, given how quickly web technology develops as well, um, doing something a little bit more in-house, like the U.S. Digital Service or the Defense Digital Service both have um, interesting projects that, that are done in-house by experts that do rotational services and, and expanding that and giving um, those organizations more runway to just do good work <laughs> um, as people who know the system, because that, that goes kind of back to Danny's point where it feels like there aren't very many people who know how to get DOD out of its own way when it comes to doing innovative uh, projects like that. Um, and not just externally guiding some of these smaller businesses uh, you know, that aren't prime contractors, but also internally where you just have software engineers that have the talent to be able to update some of these unclassified sites or, or applications um, in a way that wouldn't require a full contract with an outside party. Yeah, that talent point is so good. And everyone at this table has had some kind of struggle with trying to get into the DOD and into the functional areas that we want to serve. I don't want to go to my soapbox and vent too much, but that idea of how do you get innovative talent, tech talent into the DOD, how do you bridge the gap between the private sector and the public sector is a whole nother episode that we could go into. And Bethany, you just ended with public private partnership is part of the problem that we're trying to make 
a partnership out of something that fundamentally needs to start with being a public-public partnership, so DOD and academia, and that the private sector's role in this comes further down the line, but not in the innovation and creation phase. Ooh, that is a hot take. And I'll, I'll expand <laughs> on this hot take since I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for it. Um, a really cool model that I saw during my time here was um, SOCOM, which the Military Special Operations Command set up a hackathon with MIT and other ROTC units where they bring in interested students, talk to special operators, understand their customer needs. So as Nona was saying, like talking literally to people who will be using the tools and then build prototypes. And the ones that are promising get handed over to a place like Lincoln Labs, which is capable of developing it with the level of quality and security production that's needed. So not, not student prototypes in the field, but that's a totally nonprofit driven, like customer driven innovation infused process. And that happens via, you know, outside the contracting space. Um, it happens because they're interested and talented and excited people who get put in a room together. And you can do that when what you're not involving is profit. And so you don't have to have all this bureaucracy around an even playing field. And I'm just wondering, like, when we're talking about needing to move away from primes and have grassroots innovation and innovation that's closer to customer, doesn't it seem like if we just center our innovation in spaces where there's already hubs of talent and interest and energy, i.e. academia and research, that you can get that process going more quickly? And it's not to say that then we don't go to the private sector, but doesn't the start of this happen there? And even to jump off of Danny's point there, like I'm, I'm never going to say that problems can be solved if you just teach the whole country how to code, because I think that that's overly <laughs> idealistic and naive. Uh, but that is one way to get more money back into these states that aren't Silicon Valley and aren't Boston, right? right. Like to actually have DOD partnered academic institutions that teach technical, uh, you know, you can trade schools or, or technical degrees to students in other states that aren't planning on going and working for Silicon Valley. I yeah, and I would make a plug for the National Security Innovation Network that does this and they have regional directors who do hackathons or who reach out to universities to try and build this yeah, nonprofit academia bridge and it, it's a good way to get people thinking and talking to an institution like the DoD and realizing there is a career pathway here like Ensign has done a lot of great work in the Boston area um, and, and continues to do so in other areas of the country. Wow, so when I said at the beginning of the episode that there's a lot to unpack and it's a tangled web, I think the many directions we took this episode just speaks to that, that this is a really complicated issue that spans so many actors and so many complex issues, um, you know, we're all we're all going to be dealing with this for, for the rest of our careers, given the direction we want to go in. And, you know, I'm excited to have our we have our conversation with Eric Rosenbach. We build into this conversation and expand it. But again, this is going to be a problem we're all going to be wrestling with for, for a long time. So excited that we all have such a great conversation. You know, you've heard him, you love him. <laughs> <laughs> Those are grooming. Yeah, exactly. Grooming? I've like met contractors. <laughs> <laughs> well, that checks them a little bit. Like, yeah, I'm so sorry. What are you? Having a
Thanks for listening to Cyber.RAR, a podcast by Harvard Kennedy School students. This podcast was recorded on May 4th, 2022, and does not reflect the views of any institution or even our own after that date, as we're just students trying to navigate the murky area of cyber policy. Thanks for tuning in.